Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you want to help someone who's struggling but have absolutely no idea what to say or do? We've all been there. Welcome to Profiles in Comfort, where incredible everyday people who are living through really difficult times share their stories of how those around them use the skill of comfort to help them through the valley, showing us the way to break through our own awkward zone to help those who desperately need to know we care. Welcome to Profiles in Comfort. I'm Jen Marr, and today we are talking to Ed DaCosta. Back in the summer of 2017, for those who knew Ed, something very strange happened. He suddenly disappeared. Here was a man who was very much in the public eye in front of thousands of people, speaking and influencing, training, coaching, and in Ed's way, cracking countless jokes and telling story after story. A man loved and admired by thousands all of a sudden was no longer leading training sessions and posting on his social accounts. What happened? Today's profile dives into the story of Ed's life with a brain tumor and how he made it through to the other side, all with the love and support of his family and friends who walked with him step by step out of the valley. Hi, Ed DaCosta. Hello. Good morning, Jen. How are you? Great. I am so excited to have you on this episode because you have just such a great story to share. Uh, and I want to go back to the time you were at peak of your career working as a trainer with the John Maxwell team, going around the country, around the world, basically, being a speaker, a major influencer in so many different ways. And all of a sudden, things began to change. Take us back to that time, Ed, and talk about what happened and what was the result? Sure. So first of all, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Jen. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we originally spoke about it. I am a fan of yours and the program. I've read the book. I have gained a lot of value from the content that you've created. So it's my pleasure to add whatever I can uh, to uh, to the story and, and hopefully be of of some value and benefit to, to your audience. So absolutely, um, we're gonna go back to just under four years ago. So the summer of 2017, I was doing speaking engagements all over the world, as you say. I was speaking in front of audiences upwards of six and 7,000 people. I had a full coaching client uh, schedule and you know, a wonderful family and busy with family obligations and church and, and local things and, and very, very happy. However, my wife started noticing some changes in my behavior that I was unaware of. I was um, losing my track of time. I was more tired. I was going to sleep earlier. And she was concerned and she mentioned these to me, and I was very dismissive. And I wasn't dismissive as a, you know, typical husband, wife, you know, comedy show where, you know, because your wife is saying it, you're saying it's no big deal, honey, I've got it. No, I, I literally thought there was no big deal and there was nothing wrong. And then I missed a client engagement by 12 hours. I arrived at a speaking engagement in Europe 12 hours later than I was supposed to. And I wasn't terribly apologetic about it, which I should have been. When I came back to, to the United States, 
my wife had done a bunch of research unbeknownst to me and told me we needed to go to see the doctor. And she knew a lot more than she was saying, but didn't want to explain it to me because she was concerned that I would be, again, dismissive. And I probably would have. But she said, just please, let's go to the doctor. And so we got in the car and I thought that I would be home in a few hours. We don't live very far from the medical center. (laughs) It's maybe 15 or 20 minutes away. I thought, you wait a little, see the doctor and I'll be home in a few hours. And I didn't come home for six weeks. I did not re-enter my home for six weeks. And the reason is that I had a brain tumor. And I had a brain tumor in the front part of my brain, which impacts your executive function. So if you read down the symptoms of this particular location of a tumor, it was it fit like a glove in the behaviors that Linda was witnessing. It was impacting what is called your executive function or my executive function, your awareness of time, your awareness of obligations. It's your self-awareness. Thank God Linda did what she did. And so, you know, I had surgery two days later and I went through significant rehab, inpatient rehab. And then I had to do outpatient rehab for about four months after I got home. And, you know, I disappeared off the face of the planet. So it was shocking for me. Uh, shocking for my family, my three grown children and my wife, and my other family members and friends, um, because they they didn't know where I was. And they reached out to Linda and she said, well, he's in the hospital. Not a car accident, nothing like that, but he's he's in serious condition and he's recovering. And she was really wrestling with how to describe it to people. But eventually it it got out, you know, what I was in the hospital for. And, you know, by the time I came back and was able to reconnect with people, I mean, honestly, I had nearly a thousand people to contact. So Ed, I mean, this is just crazy to think how this can happen that one day, unbeknownst to you because of a brain tumor, you are behaving so differently than you had been. Um, thank you, Linda, for noticing this and doing the research. But this was a long time. And talk to us about being in the hospital for six weeks. And I would imagine with a traumatic brain injury like that, you have to really limit your brain activity. Um, so you can't be real active. You might really have not even been that aware of what was going on. Talk to us about those six weeks in the hospital. And How did you get through that and what motivated you? So when I woke up after surgery, I was pretty oblivious to what was going on because I only had found out that I had a brain tumor. So when I woke up, my brothers who live in Connecticut were were in the room. I just thought, what what are you doing here? (laughs) I was clueless. And then I was scared. I mean, I was scared. I had a very direct, brilliant surgeon, amazing in the operating room with just a blunt, direct style of communication. 
He's a neurosurgeon, really smart. And one of the things that he said, kind of in an offhand way, Jen, was there's a chance you won't be able to do what you used to do. Now, he said that to me with my wife in the room. And I, I froze. I mean, I, I just thought, well, that, you know, that can't be. That can't be true. But I didn't say that. I'm not going to argue with the surgeon. But I remember thinking, you know, what can I say to my wife so that she's not terrified by that possibility? And so my goal at that point, you know, what motivated me was that statement. What motivated me was that statement. I dove into cognitive therapy. I did more crossword puzzles and more Sudokus and more logic puzzles. I bought books and I finished the books. I've got dozens of books of puzzles and brain games that, that I did in order to, to get my brain function back to where it was. And, and fortunately, they caught it, thanks again to my, my wife's taking the initiative um, they caught it early enough so that it didn't start to consume my brain. It was moving my brain matter. Wow. It hadn't started to consume it. And so when he opened it up, he was able to, to, to take it out, you know. And That's amazing. So, Ed, I want to go back to this point of which you're in the hospital room with Linda And this is at a point where most people are concerned about you. Because of what the doctor said, your focus immediately went to Linda. Now, here you are as a patient just having gone through dramatic brain surgery, and your focus goes on Linda. So it's a great example of when we're in these situations, it's all about human care and connection. It's what gets us through. And one of the questions I have for you is, what was it like in the hospital with how people cared for you during, the, for you during this time? I, I, just wanna, I just wanna echo what you just said because Linda is a very gentle, sweet, caring mother and wife and now grandmother since we have two grandsons. And she's the nicest person I've ever met. And I truly mean that. And you hear that a lot. And I don't know if everyone means it. Maybe they do. But, but she is as nice as anyone I've ever met. So she did not wag her finger in my face to say, I told you there was something going on. And you had a brain tumor and you didn't know. It. She never said that to me. And she could have. She easily could have. She'd have been justified in saying that. But she never did. And I remember feeling that feeling of guilt, that feeling of, look what I've gone and done, okay? I, I went and got a brain tumor. <laughs> now, it's silly. It's ridiculous to look at it that way, but that's the state I was in. And, and now my wife has heard the surgeon say this thing about I'm not going to be able to do what I used to do. He said there's a possibility, but I totally translated that into There's no way you're ever getting on stage again. I mean, I heard it that way. And that has frightened my wife 
and I have this, whether it's chivalry or whatever it is, this desire to ease her, give her comfort that, you know, I'm going to climb back up. You know, you know me, I'm a tough guy, yada, yada. I want to talk for a minute about the cycle of comfort, right? And I think there tends to be in the beginning what could be phrased a comfort deluge. Everybody wants to reach out and talk to you. Everybody wants to make sure you know they are remembering and caring for you. And especially, Ed, you are known and loved by thousands. And I'm sure many wanted to say something to you. So what I want to talk about is two things. First of all, how did people react initially? And secondly, what happened after a week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks? Did that keep up? There was a deluge. After I was home, I was not online for about a month. So it's, it's a period of about 10 weeks where I disappeared from social media, emailing, texting. I mean, 10 weeks. I mean, that's, that's two and a half months. And so when I got the green light to listen to my voicemail or check my messages, I got my phone. And I mean, there were 790 something messages. And I just thought, again, how in the heck am I going to respond to all of these? Then I looked on social media, on Facebook. You know, <laughs> you have, you have 1,216 unread messages on social media, on, on, um, on Facebook. How am I going to do that? And so I crafted, thank you for your thoughtfulness and for reaching out. Uh, I have been through a very difficult time with my family, but I'm on the road to recovery. I very much value um, your thoughtfulness. And I just copied that and pasted it. And I put the person's first name, but it was a kind of an auto responder kind of a thing. And it was just my way of, I wanted to acknowledge the people that didn't know that I was unable to respond and thought maybe that I didn't care enough about them to respond. And I didn't want to give people that impression. And so once I had done that, you're right, the, the deluge flowed to basically a drip to people that were really friends of mine, people that I've known in real life, not just virtually, um, and family. Still, there were hundreds of people, but, but not thousands of people. So I remember you telling me once about a gentleman that came and played chess with you each week. Oh, yeah. People have different ways of saying, I care about you. You're important to me. And some of them are easily understood and some of their methods are not necessarily understood. So I have a dear friend that I have played chess with before and he lives across the street. And he's an ER, um, emergency room doctor. So just a wonderful guy. And he came over and he said, hey, we're praying for you and thinking of you. And 
you know, we tried to help Linda while you were in the hospital. And they came to visit me in the hospital a few times, he and his wife. And he said, he says, I understand that you're doing a whole lot of, you know, brain therapy, cognitive therapy. And I said, oh, yeah, I am. And he says, well, chess, chess is a good thinking game. He says, maybe this is my only chance to beat you, but I would love, I would love the chance to play chess with you when you think you're ready. And I thought, such a weak, such a wonderful man anyway. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, let's play. Let's play in a few days. And honestly, I didn't know if I was, I'm not a very good chess player, but I'm okay. And um, we had such a good time talking and playing chess. And, I love you know, it. He'd stay for two hours. And they'd say, okay, you know, I beat you once, you beat me once. You know, when do you want to play again? I said, oh, no, no, you don't have to keep doing this. He said, no, 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 I want to play. I want to play. And now that you, you can't go out, so, you know, you're not doing anything else. Let's, let's play again tomorrow. Now, he was teasing me, but it was in a very kind of a guy-to-guy way of saying, hey, dude, I want to spend time with you. You know, I'm, I, you know, I may not be the best chess challenge for you, but I know you're not bored while we're together because we're talking and I know his children and he knows my children and you know what I mean? So it was incredibly valuable. I have, I'm in a Bible study and surprise, surprise, the men that are in that men's group, they're very faith centric men. And so they prayed for me and I, I had many very thoughtful cards and, and emails and voicemails telling me that, you know, they've said this prayer for me and this prayer and, and, you know, very, very kind. And, and, and frankly, that's what the majority of people do, right? Is they say, they're not sure what to say. So they say, you're in my thoughts and prayers. Okay. As if that's like the least you can do, but it's actually the best thing you can do. You know, to think about me and to pray, you know, if you're a person that believes in God, and I certainly do, um, and to ask God to shine, you know, his favor upon me, I would be delighted. Now, there was one other that, again, he left a series of voicemails for me that the last one of which my wife heard, and she thought, my God, what, you know, who would do that? And this was a man who I, who I grew up with in South Boston. And, you know, he, he basically, he, he called me, left a message and just said, hey, just call and see what's up. How you doing? Let's catch up sometime. You know, I'll spare you the selfie accent. But, but he didn't know where I was. He just thought he was leaving a voicemail for me, which he was. And then like three or four days later, he, hey, Eddie, I don't know if you got my message, but, you know, let's let's catch up. I'd love to catch up and see what's going on. You know, the Patriots won. And, you know, then about a week later, leaves another voicemail saying, you know, dude, I don't know if I still have the right number for you. I think this is your voice on the voicemail. Hey, man, give me a call. Here's my number. You know, he leaves a fourth message basically saying, you know, my wife 
tells me that maybe I pissed you off somehow. And if I did, I'm sorry. I don't know what I did. That's the way I am. If I've had a few beers, you know, sometimes, you know, I say the wrong thing. He's apologizing to me on a voicemail for something he's never done. And then he left a fifth voicemail. It's like, dude, I don't know what I might have done to make you not even be able to forgive me. But, you know, for crying out loud, we've been friends a long time. Give me a freaking call. So I called him finally, you know, and he's all ready for me to lecture him on what he did that made me angry. And Mark, you know, I had a brain tumor. I was in the hospital. Why didn't you tell me? I'm like, what do you mean? Why didn't I tell you? I couldn't tell you. I was in the hospital. I mean, I had no phone. I had no way to reach you. He was like, my God, dude, I thought I did something. And you all can imagine the conversation. It was, it was really funny. Well, okay. So, so much what you said there. And I think what is really good to think about in this case, and I, I want to ask you about it, is you had this initial deluge of support. And then at the end, so first of all, public announcement, you know, sometimes people feel like they have to do something right away, right? Like if somebody's going through something, I need to get a card in the mail. Let Ed's lesson be a reminder that, wait, be the one that remembers in three months. <laughs> and you know, you'll probably get a response and it'll be paid more attention to and it will be there and also sticking with it. Uh, and I think it's in caring for each other. So many times we, it's a one and done deal, send a card and then forget. Um, and again, Ed's story here as we're diving into it is such a great example of hearing about his connections and friendships with all these people and how they're growing it, with those that are walking with him, right? The chess player is amazing. Okay. So now Ed, you are going through your rehab. You're doing all this and you have to find your way back out there and get back to being the amazing influencer that you are. How did you do that? Like talk about, and especially from my perspective, I'm curious who helped you, like who supported you through that and how, how did you get motivated and get back out there to be? Well, I, had, I had all the motivation that anyone would, would, would imagine. Right. I, I, I lost six months of compensation and, you know, I, I desperately needed to make up for that as quickly as I could. And I have a specialty in sales and marketing. I'm an engineer with a, you know, an MBA, but my coaching practice, you know, is, is fundamentally what I do, but I also do sales and marketing training. So I, if, you know, if I teach it, I ought to be able to do it. I also teach a course at uh, West Virginia University in business. So I ought to be able to do it, right? Those who can do, do. Those who can't teach that old saying, I didn't want to be, you know, one of those people that can teach it, but not actually do it. But then again, you know, what do you tell people? Hey, I'm just coming back from brain surgery. You know, can I, can I help you with your strategy development? You know, it's not a very good sounding pitch because, you know, people would legitimately question your, your intellectual capacity for 
understanding what their business model is and their competitive climate and all those things that you do as a consultant. And so I really didn't lead with it. Some people said, hey, I heard you were sick. Oh, yeah, I was. I'm back. I'm back. Dark. Wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I'm back. So I would tend to minimize it. I'd not, not for any other reason, but just not to make it. I just didn't think it was a good segue to talk about a brain cancer. And then all of a sudden segue into, you know, so we got four candidates. We got four proposals. One of them just got out of the OR. They had a brain tumor. You're not going to pick that guy. You're just not. You know, it's like, you know, you're going to buy a car and they say, well, it was just total, but we fixed it up. It's okay. You know, it's not going to, that's not going to be the car you choose. And so fortunately, you know, I got a lot of referrals. I have a very active, you know, online presence, as you've said. So, um, you know, I just started using content marketing and letting people know, hey, I'm alive, I'm well, I can put sentences together and I can think. And, and oh, by the way, I have programs. I wrote two books. And so, you know, if, if you have these needs, I'm very much interested in having a conversation with, with you about how we may be able to help. And that's very much, Jen, what, what I did before. Not quite sure whether it would work. And it did. Yeah. And so, you know, Ed, the thing about you, you're a South Boston kind of guy, you know, and we're all shaped and molded by how we grow up. Um, so you are a South Boston guy. And typically people would look at a guy like you as not a warm and fuzzy kind of guy that needs a lot of support. Right. So is that who you are? Like, tell us about that and, sure. and how you needed your care and support. Right. So, yeah, great point. And a big part of my identity was and still is where I grew up, the section of Boston that I that I grew up in. And it's very blue collar and very hard driving. And I grew up in a very masculine. My father's Marine, three brothers. You know, it was very much a direct order you will do this. And, you know, and my brothers and I, you know, we're high achievers in school. Why? Because we couldn't go out to play until we finished our homework. So we became good students and got a lot of positive feedback from that. But you're right. So the exterior is, I'm certainly outgoing. I'm a type A, but people don't think there's any tenderness in there. And I, and I certainly, if you, Pulled everyone that knows me and said, give me three words to describe Ed. No one is going to say the word tender. Nobody. <laughs> okay. If they do, they don't know me. They're, they're thinking of somebody else. Okay. But the fact is, I think as you get married, you, 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 ad, you adopt some of the characteristics of your, your significant other things that you, these traits that you admire and so Linda has become more driven and more goal-oriented because she'd been married to me for 35 years. And I've become a, um, more thoughtful and more, not, not tender is probably not the right word, but more caring, more compassionate um, since, since I've been married to her. The experience with the brain tumor and everything, I came out of it very much aware of the power of being comforted by the wide variety of methods that people use, whether it was sarcasm and teasing 
or people that were saying prayers for me, that were saying, hey, you've been in my thoughts and prayers. We missed you. You were missed. You're important. You matter. Things like that, little phrases that, you know, one might think are throwaway statements that don't have any meaning. They do have meaning. Mm -hmm. And there were, there were times where I just, you know, I latched onto those feelings that, that I do matter and the world won't be as good a place if I give up and don't get back to where I was. Mm, That's amazing, Ed. And, you know, I think to wrap it up and I just want to kind of affirm what you're saying and say back to you what I think I heard. You're a tough guy from South Boston inside there was a big heart. And through this whole experience and having Linda by your side, that heart has kind of come a little more up to the surface, um, learning oh, no. how to use and, it. And I, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that becoming a grandfather accelerated that tremendously because, you know, I now have two grandsons. Vincent is four and Nathan is two. And so I'm not daddy, I'm papa, okay? And, and I'm getting goosebumps, again, just saying that word, papa. When a two-year-old wants you to read Pet the Bunny, okay, and sits on your lap, I mean, if you can't be tender then, there's something severely wrong with you. I love that. And it's so true, Ed. And I think this whole conversation revolves around life is about connection. Life is about people who care, people who you love people who support you through your good times and bad. And you have shown us all so many kind of awkward barriers we sometimes fall into and which maybe stop us from caring because we don't know what to do. And these have been such great examples. And so I want to end with the last question. Um, Who is your comfort shout out? You had mentioned that question before, and and it may be just a self-evident answer, but it's, but it's got to be my wife, Linda. Um, but I'm going to also mention um, someone that I haven't mentioned, and I just heard a bark, another bark, <laughs> that I'm going to mention our dog, Stella. We have a 10-year-old chocolate lab who obviously was six, seven when I was going through this, and it's the first dog that I've ever owned and Linda has ever owned. So we were not dog people per se. And our daughter, Laura, who's 24 now, for her 14th birthday, she wanted a dog. <laughs> thought, okay, now or never, let's do it. And we got a chocolate lab puppy named Stella. And Stella has, I mean, when I was, when I was laying on my butt at home for a month, you know, Linda works, the kids were out of the house and and it was just me and the dog. And so Stella was just there. And all the all the things that you hear as a non-dog owner about man's best friend, and they're so thoughtful, and they can read your mind, and they sense your feelings. And I had heard those things, and I didn't reject them, but I didn't, I never really thought about them very much. But absolutely true. Completely true. So Linda certainly has been just a of just a perfect model of putting other people first and putting me first and tolerating 
my bizarre behavior before the diagnosis. I mean, she had no idea. And you can imagine, you know, we're married so long. And so my husband is disinterested and he's aloof and he's, you know, you don't know. I mean, you really don't know. And she didn't know that I had a brain tumor until we went in. But she talked to a, to a mutual friend of ours that's an arthroscopic surgeon, right? He's an orthopede. And he said, well, you know, Linda, it sounds like something's impacting his, his executive function, probably in the frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. This friend of ours, our kids played soccer together in high school. So this guy's a friend of mine. He's an orthopedic surgeon, right? And so he says that to my wife. And so Linda's like, okay, who should I see in neurosurgery? And he says the name of the best surgeon. He says, you need an appointment with him. Get it in there as soon as you can. And so that's what Linda did. And without her taking that initiative, you know, I don't know what would have happened. I truly don't. And so it's just a model for me to put other people first. I know a lot of people that have been sick, people have had cancer. And I am like so laser aware of, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to reach out and I'm going to wait. You alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation. I'm not necessarily going to be part of the deluge at the beginning. You know, I might send a note, but I'm going to wait a month and then I'm going to call and I'm going to say, Hey, I came across, you know, someone with your first name and thought of you and just thought I would reach out and see how you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I've done that. And I've never had anybody say, yeah, you're violating my privacy. Who the hell are you? I mean, nobody says that. They're like, oh, oh, wonderful. Great to talk to you. Yeah, I'm doing better. And, you know, you've provided comfort. You've provided a little bit of joy for someone. And it costs nothing to give your time and your your concern to someone. Well, I first want to, again, thank Linda. Um, it's such a model of not giving up, trusting and doing all you can. And of course, Stella is wanting her attention in the background there. I think it's impossible not to notice that she didn't bark at all through this interview until you started talking about her. My goodness, thank you so much. What a journey you've been on and such a motivating force out there. Be well, my friend, and um, we'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Ed, thank you for sharing and inspiring us with your remarkable story. You know, one of my favorite lines from John Maxwell is this, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And sometimes it can be hard and awkward to know how to care. What do you say? What do you do? But you shared great examples of those that broke through that awkward to help you, whether that was playing chess, seeing through your South Boston exterior to call you, or just texting, you matter. Ed, you do matter. And we are all so grateful for your recovery and the positivity you spread. If you'd like to learn more on how you can become a certified trainer of care and comfort, or just learn to be a more compassionate and caring person yourself, please visit inspiringcomfort.com or email me at jen, J-E-N, at inspiringcomfort.com. I would love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us for profile number six. We hope you'll join us the next time. And in the meantime, be well and comfort on.